All right. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the Hope on the Way podcast. I'm Father John Ahmed and we're here with Father Dave Hassigan. And I'm located in the Portland, Oregon area and Father Dave is located down in sunny Southern California. And we are priest and we are connected with the communion of evangelical Episcopal churches. And uh, that is a worldwide communion of churches that are biblical. We're evangelical, we're charismatic, we're sacramental, and we are apostolic. And we're going to explain that to you today. And so, Father Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Yeah, doing great. And um, it has not been sunny a little bit down here, but um, anyway, um, yeah, the sun comes, I think it's out today, so. All righty. Well, we're going to, those of you who are watching us on Spotify, you'll be able to see our slide presentation. And those of you who are listening on Apple or other podcast providers will only be able to here as we go through our slide presentation. So I recommend that you join us on Spotify, but if you're unable to do that, we'll refer to the slides. And so today our topic is humbly, what was the faith that Jesus and the apostles gave to the church? What was that faith? I think that we can be presumptuous in assuming that we understand what that faith was, because we say, well, we've got the Bible, so we, we have the faith. But we want to delve into this very humbly with you, and I just want to challenge you, not to challenge your your salvic security, you know, whether you're going to go to heaven or whether you're going to go to hell. But I want to challenge those of you who are listening. Are you sure? Are you sure that you're believing and practicing the faith of Jesus and the apostles? And In Jude chapter 3, Jude says, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but I now find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. So again, what, what was that faith that was entrusted to the church? And are you really sure that you're fully believing, practicing, and defending it? We're going to turn it over to Father Dave at this point and uh, share with us this slide about Irenaeus, who wrote circa 180 and what the church was going through at that time and what Irenaeus appealed to regarding the faith. 
Yeah, well, yeah, just just before I jump into Irenaeus's, um, you know, some of his his quotes, you know, I, I think that that what we see there in Jude three is that we have a statement that the the apostles deposited a faith um, that was given, delivered once for all to the church. And, um, you know, that, that means that when the apostles of the Lamb, the apostles and the apostle Paul, when the apostles actually left the scene, um, they had given to us, to followers of Jesus for all generations, a complete deposit of faith. And, um, and so when we go to, um, we go to Irenaeus, and I'll just read a couple of, of, of his quotes. So who was Irenaeus? Irenaeus was probably the greatest theological mind and defender of the faith of the second century. So literally, he, he, he wrote about 100 years after the death of the apostle John, the, the, final, the, the final apostle um, that we know lived, lived probably into the 90s. And so about 100 years later, Irenaeus, who, who really was like a, a grandson, a spiritual grandson of the apostle John through his connection with um, Polycarp, who was a personal disciple of the apostle John, um, Anyway, he was a bishop, an overseer in the church in what is modern-day France. Um, so anyway, so just to give an idea, and he, was, he wrote tons of things. Um, but here are some of the things he said about the apostolic faith. I'm just quoting him. In, order, in this order and by this succession, the ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles and the preaching of the truth have come down to us. And this is the most abundant proof that there is one and the same life-giving faith, which has been preserved in the church from the apostles until now and handed down in truth. He goes on, it, it is not necessary to seek the truth among others, for it is easy to obtain it from the church. For the apostles, I love this, he lodged it in her hands most abundantly all things pertaining to the truth, just like a rich man depositing his money in a bank. Therefore, every man who wants to can draw from her the water of life. Draw from who? The church at that time. True knowledge is that which consists in the doctrine of the apostles and the ancient constitution of the church throughout all the world. It also consists in the distinctive manifestations of the body of Christ, according to the succession of the bishops. For by this, they have handed down that church which exists in every place and which has come down even unto us. She, the church, is guarded and preserved. Um, she is guarded and preserved without any forging of scriptures by a very complete system of doctrine. She neither receives any addition to, nor does she allow any diminishing of the truths which she believes. And it's those truths that, that Irenaeus is contending we received from the, apost uh, from the apostles. 
And just so, by just by way of context, by yes. by the second century, even in the even at the end of the first century, there were there were people who were claiming to be the true church. They were the Mormons. They were the Jehovah Witnesses of their day. And um, by Irenaeus's time, these false church people. Historians called them Gnostics, were claiming to be the true church, claiming to have the true teachings of Jesus and the apostles yep. that were handed down to them. So, in response to these, they weren't even heretics, they weren't even apostates, because most of them were never even part of the church. They were more like cults. And so, in response to them, the church did three things. One, it began to officially organize what we understand as the New Testament. And by the late 300s, uh, the church uh, officially began to adopt lists of New Testament books, because certainly those New Testament books, which were either written by apostles or by people in close association with the apostles, those books certainly would contain the apostolic teaching of Jesus and the apostles. So they began to collect, and if you'd let me use this word, canonize scripture. And the canon is a Latin word, which means rule, a rule of faith. The second thing the church began to do is to formalize list of bishops in succession. So Jesus laid hands on the apostles, the apostles laid hands on their successors, and their successors laid hands on their successors. So these Gnostics were claiming we have this secret knowledge that has been handed down through Christ and the apostles, and the church responded by, no, we have the complete list of bishops from the time of Jesus to the time of Irenaeus here, and we certainly would know uh, what what was taught. And the, the third thing the church did was began to write formal statements of faith, which we call creeds. That's how they responded to the Gnostics. And so scripture, tradition, and creeds is how they responded to this controversy. Well, and, and I think we should say this about apostolic succession, because obviously, Anybody that that term is a loaded term, and by the people that that either are for it and or against it. But clearly, what Irenaeus is teaching is not only was there the succession down from the apostles through the laying on of hands, but what Irenaeus is contending is that we have not added to anybody who is truly in apostolic succession, who is a successor of the apostles is somebody who is guarding the faith that the apostles gave the church without adding or subtracting from it. And so, you know, I know people that claim or, and they can even bring out a list and say, listen, my ordination, I can trace it back to an apostle, but, and that's great. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize that they actually have the physical succession through ordination. But the question becomes, are you passing on the same faith that the apostles gave to the church? And many times, I have to say, that is not the case. Um, so we we should probably move on. I know we could get 
we could stay in the second century because that's where I much of my study is focused on on the second and early third century. So let's continue on because I think we get to, um, yeah, go 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 for it. So what we want to do today, folks, is we know there is people out there. We minister to them all the time. Evangelicals, especially in charismatics, neo-charismatics, and they know something's wrong with um, the culture of the evangelical, charismatic, neo-charismatic movement. And especially in regards to uh, teaching, teaching doctrine, teaching uh, revelation about prophetic words and this sort of thing. And, it seems to us that much of evangelicalism and charismatic spirituality as re, has devolved into incredible individualistic practice of, of our Christian faith. And Father Dave calls it... Um, me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. There's the apostolic faith that was given to the church once and for all, according to, to Jude 3, and it seems today that we're operating in ignoring that apostolic faith, and we're operating in the realm of, hey, all I need is me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit, and I can get it figured out, even, even if it's not what the early church believed. I think too, Father Dave, is so many folks in the evangelical charismatic movement feel that they really have a corner on being the primitive church. And uh, again, we really want to challenge you, those of you, you know, I come out of the Baptist movement, Father Dave comes out of the evangelical movement, and we were we were taught is that hey we have the primitive we're the primitive church we're going back to our roots. But the more I began to study church history, the more I began to study the church fathers. We'll talk about that in a minute in more detail. But I began to say hey some of the things that we were taught as Baptists is different from what the church fathers taught the church of the second century. So what we want to do, instead of just kind of railing against evangelicals and charismatics, and you've got it all wrong, we, we want to do a couple of things. We want to help you understand, again, what was the apostolic church? How is that different from what we see occurring in the neo-charismatic, charismatic evangelical movement? And we really want to ferret out this, this attitude where everybody feels that all they need to understand the Christian faith and teach it and understand it is that they just need themselves, their Bible, and the Holy Spirit, or their personal relationship with Jesus Christ in disregard to anything else. So, Father Dave, what's, what's wrong with this understanding? Well, you know, again, it the, the cry of the Reformation was we need to get back to sola scriptura, right? I know we're going to get there in 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 a minute in terms of talking a little bit about that, but you know, what what that has 
come down to modern modern kind of Christianity is that, hey, listen, I have my Bible, and if I read my Bible and I ask God to show me what it means, then I'm okay. And anybody, any you know, born again believer who you know has his Bible open and is praying about what it means, it's almost like any conclusion I come to out of my Bible is going to be okay. You know, I mean, I, I've sat in Bible studies, you know, um, Bishop John, that that literally, hey, what do you see in this passage? And what do you see in this passage? And and it's like every single interpretation is viewed as equally legitimate because, hey, it's I we all have a Bible and we all have the Holy Spirit. And here's my what I see out of this passage. And that that would cause the early church, it would cause the apostles to roll over in their graves, and it would cause every early church writer. It's not simply that we have the writings of the apostles, but that we are understanding those apostolic writings the way that the apostles understood their writings. And so we're gonna give you we're gonna give you some examples here here in a few minutes of how um the modern evangelical charismatic church movement has deviated from the practices and beliefs of the early church. I, I would say this is that it's one thing to read scripture and say, this is how I sense the Holy Spirit talking to me about how it applies to my life. It's another thing to read sacred scripture and to come up with an interpretation of sacred scripture that was never that was never held by the early church and we again we want to give you a framework of how to move forward i really want to emphasize this even at the risk of uh overstating this is that Many of you, I think the Lord's going to draw some people here, Father Dave, that in their gut, they know something's wrong. They, they watch this and listen to this prophetic movement that's kind of raging through uh, uh, evangelical, charismatic, more charismatic uh, culture. And so many are saying so many things and different things and so many are saying, well, I follow the prophecies of this teacher, and we could name names, but I don't think that's a good, good thing for us to do. Other people are saying, well, I'm really into this prophetic person. And it even goes beyond that. My concern is that we've gotten into a culture, even, even among evangelicals, non-charismatic, is like, Who's my influencer on social media? This week, my influencer is this person. And uh, two months from now, my influencer will be this person. And deep down inside, I think the Lord's drawing some of you here, and you're saying in your gut, something's wrong with this, is that um, my faith shouldn't be so influenced my understanding of scripture shouldn't be so influenced by a prophet, by a social media influencer, because one will say this passage of scripture means this. Another will say this passage of scripture means this. How can we know? 
how can we get beyond this, me, my Bible, and what the Holy Spirit tells me, this personal revelation, this personal interpretation, is there, is there a deposit that Jesus and the apostles gave to the church where we can understand scripture by how they understood it? Well, and you know, again, I'm just examples uh, this week are coming into my mind about because it's not just I, I think we can all agree that, wow, that that can be dangerous when people are establishing doctrine with just them and their Bible. And again, Bishop John, I fully affirm that obviously when I open up scripture, somebody opens up scripture and I have a relationship with the Lord, he speaks to me about my life through scripture you know, um, by way of application. Yeah. And, and conviction. And, and I mean, you know, my wife and I, we were talking just even yesterday about, um, something that the Lord was really highlighting in both of our lives, speaking to us through his word. Right. So this is that, that is not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about people that say, I have a new interpretation, or I understand this, or I understand that these mysteries that have, and I mean, this this is been probably the start of almost every cult in the history of the church. I was just, you know, even as I was preparing for this show, going back into the early 1800s, late 1700s, early 1800s, in the Second Great Awakening, that what was called the Restorationist movement, we need to get back to the early church. And yeah. Uh, a, a family of churches that w kind of came out of that time. There's they've splintered into different groups. It's called the Churches of Christ, um, Disciples of Christ. There's different flows, but it's interesting because even there, they're saying we need to get back to that church that was handed by the apostles. Now, in some ways, I think they succeeded. They got some things right, but in other things their own traditions, their own um, worldview assumptions at the time, their own baggage coming as Protestants uh, from the Protestant Reformation, they missed some other things. Um, I wish they would have, rather than go back and just try to figure it out from the apostolic deposit, the scriptures, that they actually would have been referencing the earliest church writers, and I think they would have gotten more things right. But see, all of us, and I think we have to be clear, uh, you know, you know, Bishop John, you and I, when we say that we're contending for the apostolic faith, we're not contending for the apostolic faith based on us claiming our authority, like, hey, you know, you figured it out and I figured it out. I'm actually appealing to the authority of those that collected the scriptures that determined to us what our canon of scripture was that we're defending and articulating the apostolic doctrine even this week i had some people show up at our church who were non-trinitarian and they have been taught that the trinity is this doctrine that was introduced by the pagan church in the fourth century anyway yeah totally ahistorical but not only, not only a historical, but a complete ignorance, and I yes. don't mean that pejoratively, a complete unawareness of 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 what the second, the end of the first century, from the I writings know. of Clement to to um, 
the second century Irenaeus what the church taught. I know. Now, again. But that's common. I'm telling you, Bishop John, there are many, especially people that are trying to go back into Hebrew roots and are trying to be observant. And this comes out. There's a there's a resurgence of teachers within the Seventh-day Adventist tradition that are also teaching this. They're non-Trinitarian and and they believe in the deity of Jesus and they believe in the deity of the Father. They just don't, you know, they they don't know church history well, early church history. And so because of the ignorance in the church in terms of what the what church history, um, you know, what how it unfolded because of their ignorance, they these teachers share things and people just believe it wholesale. So, so again, again, we're back to this this idea and it's it's a popular It's a popular idea. It's very naive. It's very uninformed that all I need is me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit, or my personal relationship with Jesus. You know, over the years, and I'm sure you've had this, Father Davis, is I've had a number of people come through my ministry, and they'll often repeat this phrase, God told me. Yep. God told me. God told me, or they'll they'll say the Holy Spirit revealed to me. And that's wonderful, but God's not going to tell you something different than he's told you in sacred scripture. And God's not going to tell you something different from the consensus of the early church. If the early church universally believes something and God is telling you something different, there's an issue there. And again, some of you who are stumbling onto this podcast realize there's something wrong here. Your gut, you feel it, that this me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit culture is not working. And we want to give you that framework of how you can move forward. And we'll want to go on to our next slide. So again, the early church in the face of a very vicious and nasty Gnostic controversy, you know, they were again, I don't mean to be pejorative, but just kind of trying to compare maybe apples to oranges, apples to apples in our day, is that these Gnostics were the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses of of their day. And the church the church defined what were the banks of the river of theological knowledge. So how do we know? How do we know what scripture teaches? How do we know what we should believe? How do we know what we should believe about sacred scripture? How do we know what is essential to Christian practices? The early church and Father Dave gave us those quotes by Irenaeus. So by 180, the church, the church defined the banks of the river. They were the apostolic church. And by apostolic church, we mean the church that was founded by Jesus and the apostles, and the church, the first and second century church, that received the deposit of apostolic faith. And that apostolic faith is found in scripture, okay? And so that is the the primary source of how we understand what Jesus and the apostles taught. We understand it because their teachings 
are contained in sacred scripture. And what are sacred, what is sacred scripture? Sacred scripture is the writings of God's people from Israel and the church. And these scriptures, these writings were inspired and are inspired by the Holy Spirit and they're recognized as canonical by the church. This is important. They're recognized as canonical. And again, canonical means that it's our rule. It's a rule for us. And it's a standard. It's what we measure all things by. And I want to bring out this point that we need to keep in mind. In fact, let me preface this. So many people refer to the Bible as if it's a person. The Bible says this, and I think Billy Graham popularized this. You know, the Bible says, and the Bible does say things, but the Bible is not a person. The Bible was inspired by a person, the Holy Spirit. The Bible was written by people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. But it's like the Bible was kind of just popped in to out of thin air. And we have to keep in mind that it was the church who wrote the New Testament, and it was the church that canonized the Bible. It was the church that said, these are the books that are going to be the rule, the standard we measure all things by. And it was not the Bible that founded and canonized the church. The church came first, then the New Testament. Father Dave, I'm going to put this kind of heavy subject on you. Why is this important for contemporary followers of Jesus to understand? Well, again, I you know, this word canon for some people is they know they might know the term. But, you know, I think what we really I, I like to use an, an, another term that we could use is what is what is authoritative? What are we committed to submit to? And it is what has been what is authoritative? And that is what the canon of scripture is, is that these, these are the books that were either written by apostles or given the endorsement of an apostolic, of, of an apostle. And it is these that are in the canon because they are authoritative. So, you know, when Paul or John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in their apostolic role, are speaking, um, we are we are in submission to that. But if you or I say, hey, I've heard from the Lord and I'm I'm sharing something with somebody else, they're not under the authority to follow my opinion or my inspiration in the way that we find in scripture, right? And so that's not saying that there's not authority in the church and that we don't submit to one another. I'm not, that's a separate issue. I'm just well, talking- well, Hold to, on, hold yeah. on. I'm playing the devil's advocate. Now, what about the writings of Ellen G. White? Aren't they sacred scripture? Well, yeah, see, exactly. And, and this is... this What, is what about the Book of Mormon? Yeah, this is where the confusion comes in because according to the earliest church, once the apostles left, we had a fullness of revelation that, that we weren't going to get anymore. So modern day, even prophets in the second century or the third century or in the 1800s, acclaimed prophet like Ellen White from the Seventh-day Adventists 
or this, you know, take the Christian scientists, another, yeah, uh, Mary, cult, Mary Baker, you know, Mary, Mary Becker, Baker. Mary Baker, Eddie, yeah. why are their writings not tagged into our Bibles? And this is a complete misunderstanding and misuse of the gift of prophecy in the New Testament, because in the, in the New Testament church, it was apostles who had the authority, not prophets. We don't see we don't see the prophet Agabus mentioned in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 21. We don't see his writings tagged into our Bible and other named prophets in the New Testament. Only do we see that they were gathered and submitted themselves to the, apost the apostles' teaching, right? All right. What about? And so that about, is, that's a misuse, actually. So, and I, the, I was the just. The scripture says that the church was founded on on the apostles, prophets with Christ, and prophets with Christ is the chief cornerstone. So yes. you're wrong, Father Dave. Prophets, prophets are the foundation of the church. You have to obey the prophets. Yeah, well, again, there's one verse in Ephesians that people try to use to elevate New Testament prophets to the same level as apostles. And that just we don't see that we don't see anywhere in the New Testament where it says, yeah. and they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to the New Testament prophets. Um, so, so you really, know, that really one quick. verse, that one verse in Ephesians, I actually taught on it on, on, um, because all of the apostles, John, Paul, for example, were prophets, were yes. prophetic people. And so, I think when you and and then again you look at the when we roll over into the second century and we see that there were prophets continuing on in the church. Irenaeus talks about prophets. Justin Martyr talks about prophets. Of course, the Didache, the Apostolic Fathers. Um, I know that's a resource we're going to highlight today. They talk about prophets that existed in the church in the second century. And guess what? They're not establishing doctrine. They're not bringing up new revelation. That isn't. That wasn't the role of no, the New Testament no, prophet. No. So and anyway, the Greek, the Greek in that that passage in Ephesians could be the the apostles who are prophets. I and that's exactly that is exactly how I exegeted that passage. I said, listen, we're talking about when the apostles who received their revelation prophetically in dreams, in visions, as the Holy Spirit spoke to them and gave them inspiration. And so, again, that, that is the only way that you can understand that Ephesian, that Ephesian, um, that Ephesians verse that is talking about the authority of the apostles and the prophets. And one, um, of, the, one of the standards for, for accepting a book as canonical that the church used was their association to an apostle, not a prophet. Well, and of course, what did Paul say in his writing? He says, in the church, he has appointed first apostles and second prophets, right? And, and then it goes into talking about shepherds and teachers and, you know, those with different gifts. And so and again, again, those should be viewed as ministries rather than ruling offices, because the 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 offices of the church are overseer, elder, and deacon. They were never the the governing offices of the church were never were never pro, 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 prophets. Never prophets. 
as and we that, sadly today this is a huge problem in the charismatic church because there are many prophetic voices that are misusing the prophetic gift i don't question the prophetic gifting that many of these men and women have but when they are establishing doctrine or defining doctrine yes. or or telling us what a passage of new testament scripture means in some novel way they're interpreting scripture in a way that that is novel or or whatever they are misusing their gift i'm sorry that you know they they are they, and this is rampant i mean i'm thinking right now of a modern day prophet who has said he has new insight into what the seven spirits of god are in the book of revelation and he got this he claims by revelation and i'm sorry but he is outside this is cultic this is how cults begin when when a prophetic man or a woman says i now understand what this passage means it's again it is it is an abuse of the prophetic gift so, and i think that a lot of people are asking this question bishop john where do i go for yes. a reliable guide where do i go and i get it i see why people are running to the reformed churches because they took a snapshot in in you know around calvin and geneva and and the protestant reformation and they stick there that's their you know they don't change much but unfortunately they've only taken a snapshot in the 1500s All right. or the 1600s right this, this is a this is a good segue to move on to to another feature of the riverbanks again what father dave is saying and what we're we're saying to you who are listening to us is that we understand you're probably listening to us because you know that there's something wrong here there's rotten fruit that is going on is that is that one person has the bible another person has the bible we all have the bible which was given to us by the church yet many many are interpreting that bible in a way that the early church never interpreted they're adding or detracting and so it's important for us to understand that the church gave primacy to scripture because it contained apostolic teaching it's one of the features of the riverbank now i told you all that i was a baptist and i i appreciate the baptist and in many ways i if someone said father john you're a baptist i go okay i i i don't uh, i don't re refute that label if you want to label me as a, a baptist priest or something a little strange like that but uh but as a Baptist, it became apparent to me that it wasn't enough just to have the scripture because one group, and we're going to get into this, one group would say, we have the scriptures, and they would interpret it one way. Another group would say we have the scriptures and they would interpret it another way. And so let's just use for right now, the Mormon church, the Latter-day Saints. They say, oh, we have the Bible, but here's how we read it. And the Baptists would say, well, we have the Bible and that's not how. And, and so 
how do we interpret the scripture is that we need to have another feature on the banks of the river of theological knowledge and that feature is what we would refer to as we have to understand the beliefs and practices of the early church what father dave calls the early apostolic deposit now i want you to hear me scripture has supremacy scripture contains the apostolic deposit but recognizing that scripture does have primacy that it was inspired recognizes inspired by the holy spirit by the church the church also gave us this thing which we refer to as tradition for instance in john 16 12 through 14 jesus says i still have many things to say to you but you cannot bear them now when the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth so were the apostles guided into all truth father dave yes they were absolutely 100 percent. for he the holy spirit will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come he will glorify me and he will take from what is mine and declare it to you so question what did the early church think about john 16. Did well the let me say what yeah one thing about john 16 is that it was universally believed that that promise was given to the apostles in the first century not to christians throughout all of church history so it's not that god can't lead us into truth i believe that the holy spirit leads us in our lives but the promise that we would be led into all truth infallible truth right was given to the apostles themselves and not to the successors of the apostles in the second century or the third or the fourth that it was given to the apostles of the lamb the apostles in the first century which is why you know um what you do not see in the second century church is you don't even see the term or the title apostle really being utilized anymore to describe church leadership they let that title go they believed that they were carrying on the apostolic ministry but in order to give deference and honor to the original apostles they said we carry on in apostolic succession but we are not apostles and they did not use that terminology no, no you're wrong father dave you're wrong the scripture clearly says we have to have apostles it's there in ephesians there must be a new apostolic reformation because yeah, well, we, we again, lost that, we lost that, the office of apostles right yeah well that that is i see i believe I believe that we have the modern day apostolic calling and gifting in the church, but this is a huge area of where there's confusion is what is the difference between a modern day apostolic person and a first century apostolic person? And again, this is where I would go to the earliest Christians, the second century church and say, tradition. you'd go to tradition. How, exactly. How did they 
carry on this ministry. And if we find a universal consensus about these things, then I say, okay, I'm going to go with them over and against my Baptist pastor in 2023, over and against John Calvin in the, in the Middle Ages, over and against Augustine in the fifth century. Let's go back and see if we can discern how did they handle this handoff? And I'm not saying they. How did they? Yeah. How did they? Who are the Who are the successors to the apostles? Well, again, according this, to the early church. Yes, the the early church clearly put this into the office of the overseer or the bishop in in the early church. The you know the episcopoi. You know, um, this was where. You no, know, no, that's an invention. That's an invention. There is no such thing as there's no word called there's no bishop in the Bible. There's no well, word. Again, that, that, the that's advocate. a later that's a later term. I'll just go with I'll go with the, the, the New Testament term overseer. But oh, episcopos. Yes. Irenaeus was the overseer of the church in Lyon, right? That was his office. That was his role. Was he defining doctrine as in that role? No, he was guarding the apostolic faith as he received it, and he handed it on without addition. This was, this is, if people would just go back and read the earliest church fathers, and the problem is they don't read early enough. They read somebody in the fifth century or the sixth century or the whatever. They don't Why go is back. Why is proximity to Jesus and the apostles, because you say go back the way, why is that more important than, let's say, um, going to the 4th century, the 5th century, the 6th century? Why, why is, why is um, the apostolic fathers, why is going back to that, that's, that uh, uh, late 100s, early 200s church, um, even early 100s, why is that important? Well, I, I often I often just fast forward it to say people that knew George Washington, the first president of the United States versus me today, you know, 200 and whatever, um, 50, 60 years after the fact, right? There's people today that say, well, I know what George Washington said. I know what he meant. I knew his I know his character and or you have people that knew him personally and we have their writings. So if you wanted to know, you know, if you wanted an authoritative answer about who would know better what what George Washington meant, what the what the founding fathers meant when they had this document, because this is going on today in American culture is People are taking a document like the Constitution, and they are reinterpreting it through a modern lens over and against what we would call originalists who said, what did this document mean by the people who gave it to us, right? This is a very relevant, and, and so I think what we have, what we have is as, as the church continued to march on through church history, we see things changing. We see doctrines that get watered down. We see doctrines that get discarded or changed. For example, I know we've covered this. 
But how do we know whether there's a literal millennium in terms of when Jesus comes back or if that was just figurative language and we should not be millennialists at all. We should be what's called amillennialists. Because right? that's, that's what the apostolic church taught. Exactly. That's where the apostolic church, they understood. No, when Paul and John spoke about the great tribulation and a coming millennium, especially John, they all understood that in a particular way. So, Therefore, I'm going to conclude that the earliest Christians, again, as long as they had a consensus view, if you have a differentiation of viewpoints, there were, I can tell you, I know there were things they debated. Some thought that there would be a literal rebuilding of the temple at, in, in the, in, at the end of the age. Others would say, no, that was, that was figurative. That was something that I don't think that the apostles um, articulated because the earliest Christians didn't know. Some of us think this, some of us think that. But when they had a consensus, yes. like for example, I, I mean, it gets so contentious because people don't like the word tradition. But every Orthodox follower of Jesus in 100 AD believed that Jesus was fully God. For example, there were no Arians. There no, were no Jehovah's Witnesses. No, Constantine made that up. Well, what Constant, I'm saying is Constantine came up with the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, well, and my and friends, because, my friends in the way movement um, shared that with me and they, they know better. They know better than the, the church of the first and second century. And, and I was being a little sarcastic. Yeah, let me, no, I get let me it. Just, let me just I, conclude it like this. Let me just before we move on is that Father Dave and I are not saying that the tradition, let me use a different word that the witness of the apostolic church, the church of the of the uh, the first century and the second century, we're not saying that that the verbal, the non-inscripturated, the verbal teachings, the verbal tradition of the early church is inspired. But what we are saying is that it is a witness to how the ancient Christian church at the first and second century understood the scriptures, understood what the scriptures taught about church government, what the scriptures taught about, about uh, uh, doctrine. So if, if we're teaching something about scripture that, the, that is against the universal consensus of the first and the second century church, that should be an issue. Now, why, why is this important? We're we're gonna get we're gonna get there in just a minute because well, we have some special challenges today. Why me, we why we need the tradition of the early church? Let me introduce. Let me just interject one tradition that almost every Christian would 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 follow, and they don't even know why, but it's that they're following tradition, and it's that Christians gather for worship on Sunday. That is a universal tradition. Now, there are Seventh-day Adventists and there are Sabbatarians that are trying to make an argument that the church... No, um, Constantine made that up. Yeah, well, and, and again... He's the, he's the boogeyman of the, yeah, of the, and, of the and 300s. That, that is absolutely contradicted by every early church father from the late first century onward 
that what we have is we have the tradition is that Christians gather on Sundays. And that was universal. No, nobody didn't. That was when Christians gathered for their worship. Um, and well, Father Dave, we should never use verbal tradition. We should only use scripture because the early church only used scripture. They didn't use verbal tradition. Am I correct? Well, again, it's it's that that is just a that is a Protestant myth or a misuse of sola scriptura. Could you read there, there, too for there's us? no verse. There's no verse that says these are the books that we should have in our New Testament. That was church tradition that, you know, the the, the canon of scripture that we have. I mean, this Wait a alone, the, the it, church, the church. The church, it was the church who gave us the Bible and not the Bible who gave us the church. Exactly. So what you're saying is that is that we should pay attention to what the early church taught about uh, apostolic traditions, some of which is in scripture. I want to read 2 Thessalonians 2.15, where, uh, where Paul says, Brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. And so... Is it wrong to assume that not all apostolic tradition was inscripturated? It's absolutely the case. And of course, one of the reasons that the canon was needed was because there were all sorts of people claiming, well, this is this is an uh, epistle of Paul and this is a, another gospel and whatever else. And so the canon actually emerged to protect the apostolic faith. But it is true that there are practices that we do not see, for example, any commandment in apostolic, um, you know, documents about when we should fast or how we should fast. There are biblical passages that say they will fast, but I'll tell you right now that the entire early church had a, had a tradition of fasting um, that you see all throughout the church. This would be an example of something that they were given by apostolic tradition that was oral, because uh -huh. we see it in their practice. And fasting before Easter was probably the earliest, am I right? Well, it was fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, and fasting before Pascha, before Easter. Yes. Those were the two traditions that we see that were deposited in the church. So we have we have the supremacy of scripture. Scripture is is the apostolic teaching. But we also look to the writings of the early church, how they understood scripture, how they understood the practice of our Christian faith to help us interpret scripture and we're going to see why in just a minute when we talk about the progressive church. And the other two banks of the river inform our understanding of scripture and our understanding of tradition, but they don't trump it. And that is reason, the collective reason of the church, not just your reasoning, Father Dave, not just my reasoning, not just John Wesley's reasoning, not just Calvin or Luther's reasoning, but the collective reasoning, how they thought about the beliefs and practices of what it means to be um, Christians. And so the, the church through its collective reason over the ages, has, has, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, used our critical thinking faculties 
to to help us practice our Christian faith. And I give a couple examples here on this slide. For instance, the study of apologetics. And we know that uh, Justin Martyr was probably the first apologist of the uh, known in the, the early church. But another example is Sunday school. Father Dave, you know we don't have Sunday school in, in the Bible, nor do we have Sunday school in, in the early church. But, but Sunday school... Um, has been something in the uh, through the reason of the church is that hey this this could be a great way uh, initially to um, educate street kids who don't come to church who don't have stable Christian families let's call let's do a Sunday school and D.L. Moody brings them in to to these street kids in Chicago on Sunday school another thing we can use to uh, help inform our faith again. It's subordinate to scripture, the primacy of scripture, followed by the tradition of the early church. And then the collective reason of the church is also the collective experience of the church. And this is especially pertinent to revivals and renewals, is that throughout the ages, the Holy Spirit has been encountering with the church in its experience, its collective experience the Holy Spirit has been leaning with it, leading us as the as the the church through the ages and the the revivals and renewals of the church throughout the ages. There's a, a continuing theme of experience, and so we can draw from that experience. We can draw from that reason to uh, reform our faith. There, a very a very recent saying is is ecclesia which means church, semper reformanda, which means in Latin, the church must always be reformed. That was popularized by Karl Barth in 1947. He was a Protestant theologian. Allegedly, he derived that saying from, from St. Augustine. We could debate whether that's true or not. But we want to say that reformation and renewal and revival must stay within the scriptural and apostolic riverbanks. It has to follow the pattern of teaching in scripture, informed by tradition, informed by the collective reason and collective experience of the church. And Father Dave and I, uh, we've been talking about the modern prophetic movement, and 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 unfortunately, much much of its attempt at, at reformation and renewal have not been within the riverbanks given to us by the early church. Could I just interject on this issue of reason and experience? Because I'm just going to illustrate a very modern example uh, or you know, very relevant. I mean, this week or in, in, in the last couple of weeks, you know, here's a debate that, that Protestants have. Did the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, be those the prophetic gifts or the healing gifts or the supernatural gifts, did those gifts end at some point in church history usually they say when the apostles died or did they carry on so i'm going to use my reason uh this is how i this is how i would solve it now i see paul writes in corinthians about you know about the spiritual gifts i don't want you to be unaware and he gives instruction to the church in corinth about how the gifts should be you know he lists some and how they should be used and and all of that all right, so here's me using reason. Did the gifts of the Holy Spirit end with the apostles and their death? 
or did it continue on? And so it's, it's reasonable to assume that if the gifts ended, I would no longer find them in the church in the second century. So I went back into the church. This, this settles the matter for me. I went back into Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and, you know, Ignatius of Antioch. Even Augustine or Augustine. Well, later, later yeah. Augustine. But I just go, did they end? I go to the earliest writers and their practice and all of the gifts that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 are and 12, 12 and 14, are in fu functioning in the church in the second century. So I now know, uh, you know, and it's reasonable to assume that if I want to answer that question, did the gifts end or not, reason would tell me, go look at whether or not they did. And I wish all my cessationist friends, most of them are reformed, that they would literally just read Irenaeus or read Justin Martyr, yeah. And they would give up their cessationism right away. They they, they right, can't hold on have, to it anymore. You have now, scripture, you have scripture witnessing to it, tradition verifying it continued yeah. after the death of the apostles. Reason tells us that that it was still going on then, and experience tells us through well, the Holy Spirit it's still going on today. So then here's here's an example from this just recently. So I was I'll give a, a, an example of, of one where God spoke to me a word about a total stranger. He gave me a one word thing. Um, I stopped this woman and I said, does this word mean anything to you? She takes off her glasses and she says, are you an angel? And I said, no, um, you know, um, I probably made a joke like I, I'd like my wife to think I am. But anyway, I gave <laughs> I gave um, I gave my number to her, uh, my wife's number to her. She contacted her. My, my wife led her to the Lord, led her through exorcism. Um, we baptized her and she was joined to the church. Now, somebody would say, well, I don't believe God still speaks. God, the Holy Spirit does not speak to people today. Well, what, then what was that? What, what, I, I got what was called, what Paul calls a word or an utterance of knowledge, supernatural information about somebody else that I did not know. And it led to this woman coming to faith in Christ, being baptized and added to the church. So I, I have tradition, I apostolic tradition, I have reason and I have experience, all showing me that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are existing today just as paul instructed to the church in corinth in the 40s in the first century so anyway we move a great, on a great segue so um those of you who are watching us via spotify you can see this chart but again how do we understand the authority of theological knowledge in the church i have these flow charts here here's here's how it doesn't work it doesn't work that tradition, reason, and experience have primacy over scripture. That's not how it works. Okay. It doesn't work that scripture, tradition, reason, and experience all have, all have the same weight of authority. 
it certainly doesn't work that me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit has primacy in what we should teach in the church. So if I, Father John, have myself, I have the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit with me, and I get to, I get to teach whatever whatever I teach because God told me. Now, again, this is what is going on in the modern evangelical charismatic, neo-charismatic movement church, me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. And, and those, in many times, there's nothing, there's nothing evil or insidious about it. It's just a naive way of functioning. And many, many, many pastors, especially, and again, I don't want to seem pompous or presumptuous, but many of us who have had theological education, many pastors who have had theological education know that this, this, this thing that's going on, me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit, is not acceptable. Why? Why, why, is it, why is it raging in the evangelical charismatic church? Why do pastoral uh, figures let it go on, Father Dave? Well, I, I, think it's a, I think it's an abuse of modern-day um, modern uh, concepts of tradition. Modern-day, when, when we say reason, you know, um, you go back, you go back to, um, you know, you go back to, let's just take John Wesley, who came up with this fourfold kind of understanding. Um, you know, he articulated it. But reason today or modern philosophical notions of truth and how we arrive at truth are very different than at the than in the days of John Wesley. So you have people today that are they believe that they are faithfully following tradition, reason and experience and and scripture to come to non-apostolic um, conclusions. Um, they do. I, I mean, it's happening. I'm just thinking of the arguments that people are making today for some of the doctrines that we're going to look at at the end of this that have, that have slipped into the church or slipped into Christendom, that people say, well, my tradition says this is okay. I mean, the very tradition that John Wesley came, that, that he started or, or that, that really followed him, say Methodism, th this has become one of the most corrupt traditions in modern in modern church history in terms of departing from the faith that John Wesley would have understood and practiced. So anyway, let's continue. I I I I know that we've just probably opened up some more can of worms there, but let's go on with the no, notes. I, I think that's where we're headed. We have to examine those people which are calling themselves the church today and um are are not are not using this riverbank that was given to us by the apostolic church. And here's the correct flow chart is number one, the primacy of scripture is scripture is and contains the inspired, the inspired apostolic teaching of Jesus and the apostle, the new Testament, as well as the old Testament. Why? How do we know scripture is scripture? Because the church guided by the Holy Spirit, told us it was. That's how we know. The church's consensus was this is scripture. Underneath that, our understanding of our practice and beliefs about God, 
our beliefs about scripture is guided by the beliefs and the practices of the early church. This is early apostolic tradition. And again, its proximity to Christ and the apostles gives it weight and authority. Because uh, uh, the successor of, of John the apostle would know what John the apostle believed in the millennium, like Father Dave was saying. Now, under, under this, under the beliefs and practices of the early church, then we can be further informed, not in contradiction to, but further informed by the collective reason and the collective experience of the church, as Father Dave elegantly um, uh, developed for us with the gifts of the Spirit continuing today. So well, I think it's one thing to one thing to Bishop John is that you and I, we have come to a conclusion that we are going to understand the apostolic faith from the earliest sources that we can discern, right? And that is uniquely what where we get connected. Other people, I, I just, it, it sort of drives me crazy that every Christian that I know is actually firmly committed and in a tradition, and they don't see it. And so, if you're going to ask me which tradition am I going to appeal to to be the right understanding of the faith, I'm going to go with the earliest Christians that we have their writings, we know what they believed, we know what they taught, and I'm going to appeal to their authority as those who rightly understand the apostles. I'm not going to cite Augustine or Luther or Wesley or modern day teachers. I mean, that today there are people that are huge disciples of, say, you know, Joel Olstein, you know, uh, to take a popular modern preacher. Or, you know, I know people very committed to the teachings of R.C. Sproul. You know, he was, a, you know, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but obviously a very famous um, Bible teacher. They can inform God. us, they can inform us by way of reason, but they can't inform us by trumping tradition well and it they are following a tradition themselves right well and that's let that, me as long you. as as long as everybody realizes we're all product of a tradition that's a brilliant point and let me just give you a tradition father dave everything you're saying is not biblical it's not biblical and those of you who keep saying this it's not biblical i and father dave would say that is a tradition that is is expanded beyond the Bible. Um, what we should be saying is that's not apostolic. Yep. Because the Bible is apostolic, and the teachings of the apostolic church is apostolic, and the apostolic teachings of the church are what Christ and the apostles believed by way of consensus. Again, by consensus. Well, and here's the thing: the cults. You know, you just take the Jehovah's Witnesses as a cult, an example where we'd all agree, here's a cult. They use the Bible. Now, we would say they misuse the Bible. Yes, but they're being biblical. They are obsessed with the Bible. That's yeah. all they use. However, being biblical is not enough. They have misunderstood the Bible. They're not being apostolic. And yet, how can somebody argue with them? It's like, listen, if they've got, and they will use, I know they have their own translation, the New World Translation, but they're happy to use 
the NIV or the NASB or whatever version is in your hand, the King James, they are, they are trained to use your Bible to counter your beliefs. But and they're, they're being biblical, yeah. but they're <laughs> not being apostolic. Okay, folks, and this is what we want to do. We want to give you a framework. So if you're talking to a Mormon, you're talking to an LDS fo folks, you're talking to Jehovah Witnesses, that you're talking to someone who, who says that they're a prophet and it's, it seems a little culty to you. We want to give you a framework in that. And we want to give you a framework for dealing with the progressive church. And we want to examine just briefly with this fourfold riverbank of scripture, the primacy of scripture informed by the traditions of the apostolic church, guided by reason and experience, is that scripture and tradition have primacy, not, not experience. The, the apostles were led into all truth. Now, one of the issues we have today is that which is called the progressive church. Recently, I saw a video, a little, a little uh, reel, a little 90-second reel, where uh, a young man in his 20s approached a liberal woman, uh, not that that matters whether she was a woman or a man, but a, a liberal woman Lutheran pastor who was at a, a, uh, a, a rainbow and LGBTQ rally, and he began to challenge her on the passage of 1 Corinthians. I think it's 6 9. I don't hold numbers very well in my head. Is it 6 9? 1 Corinthians 6 9, Father Day. Yeah, and, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, the numbers, but but where where Paul clearly says uh, forbids forbids homosexual practice. And she says, Well, I'm not going to talk to you about that now. He goes, Well, do you believe the Bible? She goes, Of course I do. I'm a I'm a Lutheran pastor. And so the issue we have is that when we're referring to the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they were never part of the church. Joseph Smith was never a Christian pastor. The uh, teachings of a guy named Russell, who uh, who inspired the Jehovah Witnesses, he was never a pastor. But the progressive church at one time was fully connected to the church. They were mainstream Protestants. And this progressive movement uh, is even cr has crept into the Roman Catholic Church as well. So you have, as Father Dave says, you have the same Bible, but people who are calling themselves the church interpreting it in a way that was contrary to the teachings and early practices of the apostolic church. Let's take same-sex marriage. I had a young person scream at me when I had to tell this young person uh, this person was a new believer, and I said, I said, I have to tell you that you can't marry someone of the same sex. Um, it's, it's, it, God's love forbids this. God in his love has forbidden this. And this person said to me in a loud voice, in hysteria, if it were wrong, God would have told me. Now, this person was, was, was using experience to validate to validate something that was clearly against scripture and against tradition. And I said, God has told you. He's told you through sacred scripture and through the tradition of the early church. It's never ever been acceptable in the history of the people of Israel or the experience and history and practices of the Christian church and their understanding of the scripture that same-sex marriage, that same-sex 
intercourse was ever allowed. Another one that's, that's even uh, more fomenting today is transgenderism. We've heard many people say, well, I feel I was born in the wrong body, and we know God doesn't make mistakes, so I must be a woman, I must be a man, I must be queer, I must be binary. From the very beginning, God said that there were only two sexes. This is the witness of sacred scripture, and it was the continuing consensus of the early church throughout history, throughout history. And these, these are two examples of how the progressive church, if we want to even give them the label of church anymore, because they're certainly not the apostolic church, They've abandoned the apostolic teaching. This is an example of subordinating scripture and tradition to experience. In fact, we have one church, one progressive church, whose slogan is, God is still speaking. You know, at least there's some honesty there. This church that uses that slogan, God is still speaking, is that they acknowledge, they acknowledge, well, at one time, God seemed to say that, that this was wrong same-sex marriage was wrong, that it was forbidden by the apostolic church, but now God is still speaking. So here's some extra canonical revelation. Here's some extra revelation that we gather from experience, from our reason. How could it be wrong? Everybody well, accepts it today. And let's, let's just add to our progressive church uh, umbrella. It's not just the moral issues that they've um, you know, altered the traditional historic apostolic Christian viewpoint on. They, um, by and large, um, progressive Christians no longer believe that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Uh, many of them are universalists now. They no longer believe in the authority of Scripture, although they'll use Scripture to try to justify their beliefs. Um, Many of they they they've they've come along and changed many different historic doctrines and understandings, and so in the name of we're progressing, they just continue to evolve. And the question becomes obviously, Bishop John, when has somebody walked outside of just error into heterodoxy and or apostasy? And I can tell you one, I'll name him because I know him personally, and I knew him um, back when he was still a part of the church, but a, a, a man that walked from, you know, from evangelicalism into progressivism and is now an atheist, is the son of, of, of um, the, the well-known Tony Campolo, if you remember that name. Yes. Um, very popular. Um, teacher and preacher, especially back in the 80s and probably even into the 90s, um, very, very popular um, teacher who himself in the end of his life embraced gay marriage uh, as somehow acceptable. But his son, Bart, is no longer even a Christian. He claims to be an atheist um, today. He just kept marching um, in, in, you know, and I know, I know him personally. I know the doctrines that he was jettisoning along the way, right? And so when, when you know, I have to say, I have to say, Bishop John, I live in an area where many people that I started with in evangelicalism, um, guys who went to seminary, 
and Bible school with me or, or, or at the same time that I started in ministry are no longer Orthodox Christians. They've embraced universalism. They no longer believe, many of them in the progressive church, no longer even believe in the historic understanding and doctrine of the atonement. Um, they've, they've come into to all sorts of strange ideas um, about the atonement. Um, they, they've, they've just wandered, you know? And so um, this is a huge problem. And so I think, I, I, I know why people, they're looking for where do I go to make sure that I'm not gonna find myself in error or into, into apostasy. We so, follow the, the example of the apostolic church, the primacy of scripture, the primacy of scripture informed by, by the, the tradition of practices and beliefs of the early apostolic church that was connected with Christ and the apostles, informed by reason and experience, but not, not uh, the authority of reason and experience. Sure. And I want to I deal with another topic that deviates from the scriptures and the historic practices of the apostolic church. And this is one that I know is near and dear to your heart. And this is something that we, we wanna be really careful of, that we don't, we don't hurt those of us, those who may be listening to this, because we're told that as many as a third of American women have had a therapeutic abortion. And we wanna take this topic up because this has been a hot button topic, especially in light of what the, the, uh, the Supreme Court has recently ruled, kicking uh, abortion uh, laws back to the states. Um, there was a recent article written by uh, a, a guy, a, a reporter uh, named Joshua Nelson, July 18, 2023, and um, having a little trouble with my, <laughs> there we go, um, with a little bit of uh, my interface here. Another, another so-called pastor, a liberal Presbyterian minister, her name is and again, I, I, I don't want this to be perceived as being hateful. Uh, and we name her because she was named in the report. So we don't, we're not trying to dox her. We're not trying to hate on her. In God's mercy, may he have mercy on her and lead her to the truth. But in the issue of abortion, this Presbyterian minister, uh, quoting the article, Reverend Rebecca Todd Peters is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church and a professor, no less, of religious studies at Elon University. Peters' other work includes the Abortion and Religion Project. The article goes, went on to say, quoting the Reverend uh, Todd Peters, I felt God's presence with me, experience, there's experience, as I made the decision to end two pregnancies, and I felt no guilt, no shame, no sin. She felt it. It was, it was her experience. Again, she's, she's appealing to experience. She told the congregation in Chapel Hill, and she went on to say, a forced pregnancy or birth is not holy. Now, Father, Father Dave, Scripture is a little fuzzy on this topic, a little bit fuzzy on the topic of, of, of abortion. What the early church have to say about it? Yeah, and this is, a, this is a, a perfect example of where 
if you're just trying to figure it out with your Bible and you don't have any verse that says you shall not, um, you know, you shall not, um, for, you know, commit uh, abortion or, or have an abortion. If you don't have the universal practice of the early church, um, then you you could come to the conclusion that she came to. But before, let's just before let's, you read these quotes, before yeah. you read the quote, let me just say this. Sometimes the strongest argument is one of silence. For instance, um, I could say, well, you know, pedophilia is okay because Christ never spoke out against it. You know, is that is that no, silence is the strongest argument because it was so universally believed that there was no necessity in scripture to even speak out about this horrific thing in specific. So let's go to that abortion. Though so, so, go ahead. You know, and I, I just pick a couple of quotes here, but interestingly, two of them um are in documents that some um considered canonical. So yeah. the first one comes from the uh, Epistle of Barnabas, uh, written sometime between, they estimate, between the year A.D. 70 and as late as 130 A.D. He said, you shall not kill the child by obtaining an abortion, nor again shall you destroy him after he is born. This is a very interesting quote, because now in the state of California, um, I forget how many days it is, but um, it, it's now... From what I understand, I, I don't know if it's fully into law, but it's been somehow passed that a child can even be killed after they have been born naturally. And infanticide uh, was a, a common practice yeah. in the, the ancient Roman world. You shall not, the Didache, which is in the canon of the New Testament today of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, you shall not murder a child by abortion nor kill one who has been born. And then um, Athenagoras, late, later in the second century, we say that those women who use drugs to bring on abortion commit murder. And we also say they will have to give an account to God for the abortion. So on what basis could we commit murder? For it does not belong to the same person to regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being and therefore an object of God's care. Yet, when he has passed into life to kill him, we also teach that it is wrong to expose an infant, and for those who expose them are guilty of child murder. So, when we who are apostolic say that abortion is a form of murder, is there forgiveness for those that have committed abortion? Absolutely. Just as there is Forgiveness for those that have committed murder in another sense, those who have committed adultery, those of us that continue. I mean, there is forgiveness. But for those who are calling abortion somehow allowable or God would lead um, a woman or, or, or a family or whatever to do this is a total betrayal. And it is not Christian. It's not Christian in any way, any sense or form. Anybody, I would look that woman in the eye who claims to be a minister, and I would say she's an apostate. She's not a Christian. She's masquerading as one, and she needs to repent. Um, that is what the entire early church, this is not Father Dave's opinion. 
This is actually what the apostolic churches that were founded by the apostles taught universally. There was no, hey, the church over there in Alexandria, they're kind of soft on the whole abortion thing. They have a different view. No, there was no Christian that held a different view than this view. So um, sadly, this was a view that Christians throughout history, all different factions of the church were in uniform about. It's only been really in the last 100 years that people who profess to be Christians have claimed that somehow abortion is allowed. All right. I mean, we could spend hours on the abortion topic and we know it's a hot topic. And if you, if like Father Dave said, if you have had a therapeutic abortion there is forgiveness there is forgiveness especially especially to those of you who are misled your pastor said it was okay your church said it was okay but i can tell you christ and the apostles it was not okay it was equated it was equated with um infanticide now i'm sharing with you stuff that father dave and i used to believe we used to believe this stuff until we connected with apostolic teaching, and we changed our minds about it because these were things that either the early church didn't teach or taught against or things that they did teach. First of all, I was always a little suspicious of this, but I think, Father David, at one time or another, you <laughs> you, you were probably a little bit more bought into it than I was, but but the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That teaching is unknown in the church until uh, until maybe, and I'm being very gracious, maybe the 1700s, but certainly probably not until the 1800s by a misunderstanding of, uh, of, of, a, of a, a Christian minister whose name was Darby. And uh, Darby using me, the Bible and the Holy Spirit came up with, uh, two comings of Christ, one a pre-tribulational rapture and one a coming in glory. And again, Father Dave, again, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time in this, but the the, the, the early apostolic church never taught a pre-tribulational rapture. Again, and for me, what I did, you know, I, I mean, do, who doesn't want the pre-tribulational rapture to be true? I mean, in the flesh, who wouldn't want that to be true? But when I, you know, when I marched back into the second century and I read the writings of the earliest Christians, every single one of them that spoke about the Great Tribulation has the church enduring and standing in faith during the Great Tribulation, not being secretly raptured out. So I, I had to submit to the, to the universal teaching and understanding of the early and apostolic church. Now, the... This word is not used in scripture, but the early church definitely taught a sacramental view of the Eucharist and baptism, that they were not mere symbols. They were not mere symbols to the apostolic church. The apostolic church regarded, regarded the Eucharist as the body and blood of Christ. As you even read sacred scripture, it's obvious in 1 Corinthians 10 that, that Paul views it as, as the real presence of Christ. Um, apostolic succession this is one that really was difficult to me and i was a baptist and 
you're a pastor if you want to be a pastor. <laughs> you know, who's who's to tell me I'm not a pastor? I don't need someone to lay hands on me and, and confirm me as a pastor. God told me I was a pastor. And so this idea of apostolic succession, of ordination by the laying on of hands, a charismatic sacramental deposit of anointing from Christ to the apostles, from the apostles to their successors, which we call overseers, episcopos, bishops, and, and down the line, down the line. Church government, we've already talked about the Episcopal uh, system, the, the Episcopal system of the church, based on the, the word for overseers, episcopos, over, episcopos, seer, like a scope, is the early church government was Episcopal, was Episcopal. And again, we could flesh that out, but but there wasn't a there wasn't a an independent church movement in the early early apostolic church. Uh, those that did go independent were apostates. I'm not saying if you're in the independent church movement, you're apostate, but we've changed our mind about this. Amillennialism. I, I was never there, but Father Dave was an amillennialist, which he denied the uh, the millennium. Then he read the church fathers, and I'm sure there's more to the story there, Father Dave. But but we're both now premillennial. Why? Because the Bible speaks of a of a real millennium, thousand year reign of Christ, and uh, the earliest writings of the early church fathers uh, testify to uh, a coming millennium. Cessationism, we've talked about that, and that is the view that was raging in 20th century uh, fundamentalist, and I don't mean that pejoratively, evangelical Christianity, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit died with the with the last apostle in the writing of Scripture. Clearly not believed by the early church. Now, I would say, let me just jump in on that because, you know, obviously I was I was in churches that were charismatic, even with, from the time I got came to Christ and, and ones that were not. But clearly the, the dominant teaching that, that I was getting was a, if it wasn't a hardcore cessationism, it was more or less a practical cessationism. I was never instructed on the gifts of the spirit how to receive them, how to grow in them, how to, you know, uh, administer them, whatever. So, but again, it was reading, you know, I'm like, okay, I, I'm going to go and submit myself to what was the universal understanding and practice of the earliest Christians in terms of how I'm going to understand scripture. And I found without exception, they all believed that the gifts, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit were continuing on in the church. And therefore, okay, I, good, I, um, I need to correct that. Anyway, so continue. And here are some popular evangelical charismatic beliefs that are contrary to early church teachings and practice. And you may not hold to these, but many do. Uh, the first one we talked about it over and over again, which is me, my Bible, and the Holy Spirit. This is a misunderstanding of sola scriptura. And I want to say to our, our Lutheran friends, there are some very good Lutheran friends who are not liberal. So I did mention a liberal Lutheran pastor, but there is a very, very strong and faithful Orthodox branches of Lutheranism. And I just want to say is that, is that to my understanding, Luther himself did not use the term sola scriptura. And Luther never said tradition wasn't valid. What Luther said is that is that tradition can't be can't can't go against the obvious the obvious reading of sacred scripture. Is that Luther held the primacy of scripture, 
Um, in a former podcast, Father Dave and I fleshed out the, the doctrine of preterism is that all of the signs of Christ's coming have already been fulfilled, usually by the, the Jewish, uh, they, they teach the Jewish rebellions, especially of 70 AD. Hypergrace movement certainly wasn't taught by the early church. The prosperity movement, certainly, certainly not taught by the early church. In fact, if they had any kind of movement and they went one way, it would be more the poverty movement. The independent self-started church movements. Again, we're not saying that you're out of the faith if you're in an independent self-started church, but that was not the apostolic pattern of church planting is that, hey, well, God told me I'm a pastor. I'm going to go start a church. Well, let me let me just say too how I how I addressed that in my own life, I realized that I was a part of a tradition that was more or less an independent, self-started church. That's where I, you know, it was a church and it, you know, it was founded actually in division and, um, and it became a very big mega church where I lived. And when I, when I saw how unprecedented it was to be a part of a church like that, I actually sought out to be connected to a historic apostolic line of churches that goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, I, it wasn't that, you know, I, 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 I had to, in my own life, address what I sensed was an area that was missing. You know, it, I needed to align myself and I needed to. I'd been sent out as a missionary church planner evangelist. And I had never had anybody lay apostolic hands on me and send me out for that purpose. And so I, I, you know, that's how our, our Archbishop, Bishop Wayne, that's how I found him, is I was looking for somebody that could anchor me into more or less the historic apostolic line of churches. Anyway, so I just wanted to say, what did that, what did that look like in my own life in terms of how I addressed it? No, that's good. That's good. Uh, the outside of church Christian movement is that so many, so many are saying, I don't need a church. I can just uh, have a Bible study with uh, a couple people and, and that's it. I've had Christians tell me um, all, all churches are man-made. They're started by people. Um, it's like, <laughs> where are you getting your history? Is that Christ and the apostles founded the church? Rebaptism, very popular today. I've met people, man, they've been baptized seven, eight, ten times. Is that that was unheard of, unthinkable in the, the early apostolic church? And, and can, I would never, I will never rebaptize somebody who's been baptized, you know, in a Trinitarian way. But what I will do if somebody says, Well, my baptism was very meaningless or whatever, I said, Okay, well, let's have a time, we'll get together and we'll activate your baptism. We will call into the present the things that I believe were either deposited or God intended to deposit in you, um, in your baptism, we'll lay hands on you, we'll release the gifts of the Spirit, we'll anoint you with oil, and I will, you know, so I, I, I realize there's many people that, that don't have experiences of baptism that really carry the fullness of what the early church um, had with baptism, and so and we, we do something similar every year. We renew our baptismal yeah. vows. So again, so, there's there's ways there's ways to get things done that are in accord 
with yes. the practice and teachings of the early church. And there are some things in, in the life of the church, again, where the early church was a little fuzzy. There was not a universal consensus. But again, what we wanted to do in this podcast today, folks, is we wanted to give those of you who knew that this me, my Bible, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is, is all that I need, all that I need to practice my Christian faith. The last thing we want to do is 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 so doubt uh, in your mind to discourage your walk with Christ. What we've tried to do is give you a way forward. There are banks of this river. The Apostolic Church gave us these banks. The primacy of Scripture, informed by the beliefs and practice of the early church, called we call it tradition. If you don't like that word, don't use it. It's the beliefs and practices of the early church that were connected to the apostles and informed informed by the collective reasoning and experience of the church as the church has interacted um, in a spirit-filled way. And so um, I'm going to give Father Dave the last word. We've been going for almost two hours, if you can believe that, but such an important topic. If you have any questions for us, you can reach out to me at the Hope on the Way podcast. Um, at uh, hopeontheway.info, all one word, hopeontheway.info. You can reach out to Father Dave at the Joel 2 Generation podcast. And or blog, and or blog. you know, we have both a blog and a podcast, and, um, you know, which is a great way. And, you know, I have to say, you know, um, Bishop John, just kind of in, in closing, is that I would challenge anybody to go back. I know that you, um, I don't know if you want to share your version, but I would challenge anybody to get a copy of the Apostolic oh, yeah. Fathers. This is a, a version by a guy named Rick Brannon. You have one. What's the name of the guy? Holmes. And, you know, to read through, that these are mostly the second century fathers, you know, really Writings from about the year 70 AD until about the year 130 is really this, this kind of um, period of time. And, and just look at what the church believed and practiced in the very beginning, what they taught about, how they quoted the scriptures, how they, they're very biblical. You know, they're always quoting the scriptures. They even say that you can establish almost the entire um the almost the entire text of the New Testament just yes. by the quotations yes. from the early church fathers. Yes. Um, and, and, and I would challenge anybody, you go back and take any doctrine or practice that you have and see if it is in line with what the earliest Christians believed and practiced. And it's very encouraging when you see, oh, wow, I really was carrying out the, the, the convictions of, of the early church. But then it's also disturbing when you realize, oh, my idea about that was very different. I mean, today, for example, there's a huge resurgence of people that are trying to follow Jewish law and the Mosaic law and, get in, and follow the Sabbath and Jewish dietary laws. I'll tell you right now, the entire early church had a universal view about those issues. All right. And, and I'm just going to leave it there. Good, good, good food for thought. Yeah. And I'd love to flesh this out more. And we want to encourage you is, is we're holding up these books here. 
Um, you can find this content free on the internet, but actually getting a book like this is that the Apostolic Fathers in English makes it more readable because some of the most of the stuff free on the internet is written in very archaic English. And um, this will this will definitely help you a book like uh, Apostolic Fathers in English or what Father Dave has, has given us. Well, we're at the two hour mark. And so I want to just bless you in the name of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray this would encourage you, this would spur you on, this would give you a way forward. Go in the peace and love of God. Amen. Amen. You know, Bishop John, just in terms of maybe an idea of doing something, because I think it's it's come up, you know, look.